Well, thank you for joining me today for this presentation on third world approaches to international law and history. My name is Tony Angi, and I teach at the National University of Singapore. And we are here in the classrooms of the National University of Singapore recording this particular presentation. Uh, the history of international law in recent times has uh, become a very popular subject for scholars, and a great deal of very important scholarship has been written on the topic of the history of international law. We can think here of uh, Marty Koskanemi's work on the gen gentle civilizer of nations, uh, Stephen Neff's uh, very comprehensive and uh, erudite book on uh, the search for justice among nations, and uh, also uh, very prominently the Oxford Handbook on the History of International Law. Uh, so all this signals uh, a revived interest in the history of international law. And uh, this has been further enriched by the engagement of intellectual historians who are also taking an interest in international law and uh, the work of uh, people who are global historians who are also focusing now on international law. So all this has led to a revived interest in the history of international law. And it has created a number of different uh, debates and uh, theoretical issues that international law scholars are now grappling with. Uh, so we can ask, for instance, you know, what should the history of international law focus on? Should it focus on the works of great scholars such as Grotius and Vattel? Uh, should it focus on state practice? Uh, should it focus on particular problems of uh, international law which are thought to be enduring problems? such as, for instance, uh, the whole issue of war. Uh, how does law deal with this whole uh, problem uh, that has been found throughout human history of conflict among human beings? So I am not in this presentation going to deal with all these issues. Um, I am going to deal with the history of international law from a TWAIL perspective. And uh, perhaps I could uh, uh, spend a little time outlining what this would mean. Let me just say a few words about TWAIL at the outset. So TWAIL stands for Third World Approaches to International Law. Uh, we are a group of scholars who are interested in reviving and understanding what Third World scholars in the past have established, a tradition of thinking about international law. Um, and although uh, TWAIL scholars have a number of different um, ideas and don't always agree on how a particular aspect of international law should be dealt with, uh, Twelve scholars, I think, could be said to be united by a common concern to think about international law and how international law could be used to advance the interests of people living in third world countries. So that's a very basic definition of Twelve. And um, uh, we've uh, in recent times produced uh, 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 works uh, dealing with different aspects of uh, this approach and dealing with particular subject matters such as uh, foreign investment or international criminal law. Uh, there's quite a lot of writing being done by Twail scholars on current issues in international law. So uh, my attempt here is to add to all that by uh, discussing the whole question of the history of international law from a Twail perspective. Um, and I think it should be said that um, all historians uh, have their own particular concerns uh, that they are trying to explore through history. I don't think that there is any such thing as an objective history of international law, whatever that might mean, because we always make decisions about uh, what 
uh, issues we think to be important um, and uh, perhaps what doctrines to focus on and so forth. So even though I claim that I'm presenting a third world approach to the history of international law, I don't really see myself as uh, being different from other historians who are writing with their own particular set of concerns, either explicitly or implicitly. Um, so the question is, uh, why are Twale scholars concerned about history? And Twale scholars are concerned about history because uh, there is a fundamental question that arises of how the non-European world fits in to conventional histories of international law. And it is when we ask that question that we encounter a phenomenon that has been the subject now of a great deal of discussion, and that is the phenomenon of the Eurocentric character of international law. So the Oxford Handbook of International Law, for instance, uh, focuses quite prominently on this theme. What does it mean to say that international law or the history of international law is Eurocentric? So uh, dealing with th that issue in a fairly basic way, um, it could be called Eurocentric because most of the conventional histories of international law focus on events and dates that are to be found within European history. So for example, we can date, take the date of 1648 uh, the date of the Peace of Westphalia, which is a defining moment for the history of international law because it is thought to be the beginning of the modern sovereign state. Uh, another date which is important for international law might be 1815. And if we have a look at all these dates, what they really signify are events that take place within European history. And of course, these do bring about profound changes in European thinking about the whole character of the international system. If we look at uh, the great thinkers of international law, we invariably focus on the great European scholars, uh, Vittoria, uh, Grotius, uh, Vattel, Pufendorf, uh, Westlake, and so on and so forth. And in more recent times, people like uh, Lauterpacht and Kelsen. And so once again, we focus on European theorists. And the sources of law that they would be studying are really sources that we find from the European tradition. So we might be uh, studying uh, Roman texts, or uh, we might even be studying the Bible. Uh, for instance, when we look at some of these historians of international law, theorists of international law. So this is what it means to talk about the history of international law as being Eurocentric. Uh, it is a history that is based on scholars, on events, on state practice, all of which focuses on Europe uh, itself. Now, within conventional histories of international law, the phenomenon of empire and the phenomenon of imperialism does sometimes uh, appear uh, in those histories. But empire is not dealt with as being an issue of fundamental importance to the very character and, you could say, um, uh, uh, fundamental um, nature of international law. So imperialism is seen as peripheral to the central concerns of international law. So that uh, provides, I hope, uh, some understanding of what Eurocentrism is and why this presents a problem for non-European scholars and non-European peoples is a topic I'll take up next. Why is Eurocentrism a problem? So the first thing I would say is that 
whether history is implicit or explicit, history always exercises a very powerful force on our thinking and on our approach to international law. So there is a complex relationship between the history of international law and the theoretical frameworks that are generated from that history. So I would claim that it is from this particular history of international law, a Eurocentric history of international law, that we derive one of the fundamental problems of international law, which is the problem of how is order created among equal and sovereign states. So one of the common criticisms of international law is that it lacks an overarching sovereign, a single body that can legislate and enforce the law. Instead, we have a situation in the world of international relations of equal and sovereign states. And this creates a problem of how could it be said that law exists in such uh, a system of horizontal authority. Now, that problem, of course, could be seen, possibly we could trace it back all the way to the Treaty of Westphalia, which creates the sovereign states and which also establishes a principle that sovereign states are all equal and there is no overarching authority. So, in other words, history creates the problems that international law scholars regard as being important and fundamental and a proper subject of their scholarship and scrutiny. And the status of those international lawyers is determined by the extent to which they can address those particular problems. So this takes me to the next point about history and its rule over us. And I would claim, for example, that history not only generates theory, but history also generates a tradition. And so a tradition is also related to the creation of a community. And so for people who want to do international law and who want to be recognized as competent, if not expert, international lawyers, it is necessary to belong to this tradition. And of course, a tradition has certain rules. It has certain protocols. And so we can see how those rules and protocols um, might suggest in a very basic way, you know, how is it that one should appear or how should one dress? What are the conversations one should engage with, uh, with other members of that community, with other members who belong to that same tradition? So in all these different ways, um, we can see that a Eurocentric international law poses certain problems to people who are not a part of that tradition. And so the question is, what do they have to do to become recognized as competent international lawyers who can make their own contribution to this discipline. So this was a problem that was felt by many international lawyers from uh, non-European backgrounds. And what was the particular approach or what were the approaches that they took in trying to resolve this uh, particular quandary? The quandary being, how does our history relate to the Eurocentric history that is the foundation of the tradition of international law that we want to be part of. Um, I hope uh, it is evident that we can see all sorts of tensions and problems uh, that arise from that particular set of um, structures. So uh, historians and international lawyers um, in earlier generations from the 19th century onward were faced with the situation where they were seen as being less civilized than European states. In 19th century international law, a distinction was clearly made between civilized states and uncivilized states. 
and states in this region, Singapore, Malaysia, well, Singapore, uh, Singapore I suppose, was uh, uh, part of a civilized state because it was a British colony. So in that respect, it was civilized. But uh, uh, states such as uh, Siam and China um, and uh, so forth were regarded as being not properly civilized. And African states, too, were regarded as uncivilized. And this had major repercussions for these countries and these people because if a state is uncivilized, then according to the rules of 19th century European international law, we find that uncivilized states are decreed to be lacking in sovereignty. And if you are lacking in sovereignty, then almost by definition, you cannot participate in the making of international law because only sovereign states are the actors that international law is based upon. So if we look at the work of um, uh, various uh, scholars uh, from um, uh, countries that were regarded as either uncivilized or semi-civilized, because uh, international lawyers of the 19th century uh, were very ingenious in establishing entire hierarchies of civilization. So there were fully civilized states, there were semi-civilized states, there were uncivilized states, and so forth. And uh, in a recent uh, book uh, called Mestizo International Law, uh, Arnaf Bekalorka has written some very interesting work about how scholars from what he calls semi-peripheral states try to deal with this particular set of issues by claiming that they too were civilized. So what we see again is a situation in which the paradigm of Eurocentric international law set the terms that other people, outsiders, had to comply with in order to achieve full acceptance as sovereign states. So uh, the great uh, Indian international lawyer, Professor R.P. Anand, uh, would argue that there was a time, uh, certainly if we look at the state practice of the 15th and 16th century, where states such as India or the different uh, communities within India were regarded as equals to the Europeans. And there were many treaties entered into between European powers and these uh, entities in Asia and so forth, the Sultan of Johor, for instance. So uh, in these circumstances, the international lawyers trying to make their own contribution to the tradition, the Eurocentric tradition of international law, basically found themselves in a situation of having to argue that we, too, are civilized. And they would argue that we were once treated by European states as equal in the 16th and 17th centuries. And furthermore, if we look back into our ancient histories, we can see that the states that were found in South Asia or Southeast Asia uh, and so forth had their own practices in relation to issues such as uh, treaty making, in relation to diplomatic immunities, um, and in relation even to the laws of war. And so the argument was made by Indian scholars, for instance, that we are not strangers to international law. Our own traditions understand the basic characteristics of international law, and we too belong to this larger tradition of international law, even if it is Eurocentric. Now, the hope of many of these scholars was that once they were admitted into the family of nations, once they had succeeded in persuading 
European countries that they too were civilized and were allowed, uh, therefore, uh, to enter into the family of nations. The hope was on the part of non-European states that they would be able to use the sovereignty that they had won to actually change the international legal system. So um, this was the strategy that was uh, developed at the time, and it was an understandable strategy because it was only if states, non-European states, were able to establish that they were civilized, just as the Europeans were civilized, that they would be allowed to enter into the family of nations. Of course, there was an argument that we are different at the same time, but we are different within acceptable limits because one of the great, you could say, uh, promises of international law is that even while a particular state has to abide by certain fundamental overall principles, it is sovereign and sovereignty uh, allows a, a state to engage with, with its own uh, or uh, protect its own culture and um, uh, follow its own rules and systems of governance. At least uh, that was the case in uh, the 19th century. So. Um, we can understand then that because of the particular protocols of a Eurocentric international law, a lot of material that I think would have been really interesting uh, in terms of the traditions of these different countries, um, traditions dealing with uh, issues of governance and so forth, a lot of that material could not be expressed as being a part of conventional international law. In other words, the argument was something to the effect of we are like you as opposed to saying we are different from you. Because if we said we are different from you, then that would be further evidence of being in some respect uncivilized. So I hope you can see the problem that was faced by these scholars. So the writing of history always takes place uh, within a particular political context. And this was the political context that was facing non-European scholars until uh, you know, for uh, uh, a century or so. Uh, in recent times, 12 scholars have revisited this question about the history of international law. And once again, the question remains, how are we to understand the experience of non-European states when it comes to this Eurocentric history of international law? Now here, um, uh, 12 scholars have found uh, a lot of inspiration from um, post-colonial scholars such as Edward Said and Deepesh Chakrabarti and Gayatri Spivak and a number of other scholars, uh, Partha Chatterjee, who belong to what might be called the post-colonial tradition of international law. And one of these scholars, Deepesh Chakrabarti, makes a very interesting argument. He says, even when we study the history of India, what we are doing is bas basically studying something like the history of India as seen through the prism of the categories, the analytical frameworks established by European history. And so what we find is a situation where we can't represent what happens in the non-European world in its own terms, in its own cultural context. What happens in the non-European world is represented through this authoritarian set of disciplinary frameworks, for example, in the case of the writing of history, the disciplinary framework has to do with the writing about the emergence of the nation state. So the argument is something like, if we adopt this framework, then every history is the writing of the emergence of 
the ideal European nation state. So can we see the problem that arises then, which is even when you're studying your own history, you're studying that history using a foreign lens. And as a result of using that foreign lens, what you see becomes distorted. And so this poses a major problem. And then the question is, can we think of some other categories, some other analytical frameworks that might enable non-European peoples to understand their own history in a, a more illuminating way, and in a way which does not simply itself reprodu reproduce Eurocentrism. Because if we study the history uh, of a, uh, a foreign country, uh, uh, a non-European country, using a European lens, the history of that non-European country would always be seen, seen uh, and appear to be lacking, because you're being judged by alien criteria continuously. So I, I hope then that uh, we can see the problem that Deepesh Chakrabarti focused on here. So then the question arises, what are the analytical categories that are fundamental to the telling of the history of international law, the Eurocentric history of international law? And here I'm going to make certain claims. So one of the fundamental problems that international lawyers have been trying to resolve is the problem I mentioned earlier, which is the problem of how do we establish order among equal and sovereign states? Now, as I said, we can see that problem as arising uh, with the Peace of Westphalia itself. Now, that is one premise. The second premise of the telling of the history of international law is the argument that Euro Europe is the center, that all the major doctrines of international law, including most importantly the doctrine of sovereignty, the nation state itself, uh, the laws of war, all these important doctrines are created in Europe and then are extended out to the non-European world, which is lacking in an understanding of those fundamental doctrines. So we can see that in relation to that particular argument, we can see why scholars such as uh, Arpi Anand and the great uh, Polish scholar C.H. Alexandrovich, um, who did extensive work on the history of Asia and international law and who made some very powerful arguments about uh, Asia's role in the making of international law, uh, Alexandrovich and Anand, uh, as we can see, were trying precisely to argue that Europe was not really the center, that there were developments taking place in India and so forth, which in a way corresponded with what was happening in Europe. And there was always interaction between Europe and India. And for instance, um, and that this interaction did have some impact uh, on what we, or what was called European international law. Uh, Anand made some very interesting arguments to the effect, for instance, that Grotius, uh, when he was writing about uh, uh, the law of the sea, was highly influenced by events taking place in this very region in Southeast Asia, and that he learned uh, various principles and adopted various principles that he then translated or, or transferred into the Western tradition itself. I shall come back to that issue. But to uh, go back to my original point, uh, the basic premise was Europe is the center and Europe creates all the doctrines of international law and then transfers them out to the non-European world. The third premise is uh, the premise that Europe was sovereign and for some reason the non-European world was not sovereign. And so Europe in due course over the centuries 
sought to extend what uh, Marty Koskunimi calls the gift of uh, civilization, the gift of sovereignty to the rest of the world. And of course it was in this way that a European international law in the end becomes a universal international law because it is these European doctrines that are presented as governing all the states and societies of the world. So these are, I would claim, the analytical categories that have profoundly shaped uh, our thinking about international law. And uh, if we think of many of the great uh, Western scholars of international law, we can see that many of them attempt to, do, to deal with this problem of how it could be said that law exists despite this problem of the absence of an overarching sovereign. An alternative uh, way of looking at these categories would contest them and suggest certain uh, different frameworks. So for example, let's look at the first premise. You know, the whole problem of international law has to focus on equal and sovereign states. Now the problem with this premise is the problem that non-European states were not regarded as sovereign for much of the history of international law from about the 18th century onwards. So how do we tell the story of states that are not sovereign within a framework which focuses on the problems of equal and sovereign states? So that analytical framework, the classic analytical framework of equal and sovereign states leaves out the experience of non-European states. Now we could say then that Europe was the center of international law. But again, uh, building on the work of uh, scholars such as uh, Professor Anand, uh, we might say that in fact the doctrines of international law, the fundamental of doctrines of international law were not so much created in the West and then transferred to the non-Western world. The doctrines were precisely created out of the encounter or the confrontation between European states and non-European states. And this takes us to the further uh, you could say, amendment we might make to these analytical categories. The third analytical category I mentioned, which says, you know, sovereignty was somehow absent from the non-European world. The question I think uh, 12 scholars would ask is, how was it decided? Who decided that these non-European states are lacking in sovereignty? And so if we ask that question, then we might see the doctrines of international law in a different way. So rather than seeing sovereignty as being a gift that Europe provides to a non-European world that is inherently lacking in sovereignty, what we might see is that sovereignty has within itself certain mechanisms of exclusion. And sovereignty is developed and refined to exclude certain societies and disempower them and empower certain societies, European societies, which are then in a position to basically intervene in the non-European societies because these non-European societies are now deemed to be lacking in civilization and therefore lacking in sovereignty. So rather than the traditional approach which says we Europe have sovereignty and we should bestow sovereignty about, over those people who are unhappily lacking in sovereignty, what we can see is that European international law denies the sovereignty of those people in the first place and then engages in the apparently uh, beneficial task of providing these, this sovereignty to people who were lacking it. In other words, the lack of sovereignty is not something inherent in the condition of non-European states. 
it seems absurd to claim that these non-European states were lacking in sovereignty if we consider the power, for example, of the Chinese Empire in the 17th century. Um, and um, if we uh, think of the very complex systems of governance that existed in many parts of Asia and uh, in many parts of Africa. Uh, these were kingdoms that uh, the European powers, uh, the European traders, uh, uh, felt uh, quite awestruck by when they uh, encountered these different societies. So then we return to this question, how was it claimed that these societies were lacking in sovereignty? Uh, and it is in this respect that we have to understand how the European doctrine of sovereignty was created in a way precisely to exclude those societies because they were different, because they did not follow the same uh, systems of governance that existed in the West, and perhaps more crudely because uh, they were not Christian. So in the earlier phase of international law, there was a strong and powerful connection between uh, Christian states and the idea of civilization. So if we adopt this different analytical framework, we might find a better way of understanding how international law impacted non-European peoples. Uh, we might be able to develop from uh, this uh, particular perspective a different vocabulary, a different set of analytical tools to explore the history of international law not the grand history of progress uh, that is an essential part of the conventional Eurocentric history of international law, but rather a history of international law told from the perspective of those people who have been subordinated by international law um, and who have been uh, in various ways exploited and suppressed by this uh, Eurocentric international law. So. On one hand, we can say, well, uh, this is uh, something that would be of assistance to uh, scholars interested in understanding the third world tradition and understanding how the peoples of the third world can try to use this international law to further their own interests. But it must also be said that this set of analytical tools might help Western scholars as well, because it would now turn out that it is in the non-European world that, that much of the history of international law has actually developed. And so I would claim that it is not possible to understand international law without understanding its operation in the extra-European world. Because it was in the extra-European world, principally, that so many of the fundamental doctrines of international law, including sovereignty, were developed. And um, uh, I think uh, I would... Um, make uh, claims for very, various other areas of international law as well that we can say were areas of international law that were developed in response to the problem as it was seen created by the non-European world. Why was, this, uh, why was the non-European world important in this respect? It was important because, precisely because it was lacking in sovereignty. Because it was lacking in sovereignty, European sovereigns could develop doctrines far more expansively and extensively in relation to non-European territories because non-European peoples did not have the sovereignty to oppose whatever it was the European states were trying to do because they were lacking in sovereignty. And so uh, the non-European world almost became uh, an arena in which international law could really flourish because it was not confronted with the problem that besets 
uh, European international law, which is the problem where what one state attempts to do can be contested by another state. And so it is the, in the non-European world that we can see another aspect of international law, and that is that part of the European international law, which is intent on furthering the civilizing mission. How is the civilizing mission furthered within European international law? It is further, furthered by labeling non-European societies as being, in some ways, um, criminal or aberrant or barbaric. Uh, or else as being deficient, or else as being in some way uh, immature. And as a result of the fact that they are criminal or immature or uh, lacking, there is a need for the intervention of European states to remedy the defect uh, that the non-European states are suffering from inherently. And so it is precisely in this uh, effort to create doctrines that would effect this transformation that we can see much of international law developing, I would argue. So uh, to uh, simplify or uh, uh, try and summarize what I've been trying to say so far uh, in terms of these particular issues, what we need are a different set of tools to try and understand the reality of imperialism and how that affected the non-European peoples and how this could be made a central concern of international law. And the second point would be that unless Europe itself, unless Western international law itself comes to understand its own engagement with the non-European world, it doesn't really understand its own history. So my claim is that the recent uh, revival of interest in the history of international law has a lot to do with the understanding, the growing realization that in order to understand international law, we have to understand how international law developed in the non-European world. And it is through the, an, an understanding of the history of international law uh, that we can uh, engage in that process of trying to uh, appreciate that history and the way in which that history in turn has affected the very fundamental doctrines of international law. There's another way in which I can try and make the same argument. And um, it's uh, by trying to use the idea of a prequel or a backstory. Um, so I've said that certain doctrines um, of international law were created through the colonial encounter, as opposed to created by Europe and then transferred to the non-European world. We might approach the same issue from another point of view. Think of all the great European um, international law scholars. Think of Grotius, uh, who is often regarded and often treated uh, as the father of international law. Well, um, it might be the case, or I would claim, that just as international law has a backstory, a hidden backstory of imperialism, Grotius, too, has a hidden backstory which has not been appreciated sufficiently until relatively recently. And Grotius's backstory has to do with an incident which took place I'm here in Singapore at the National University of Singapore. And the incident that I'm referring to took place just some miles away from here, uh, off the coast of Singapore. And that incident took place in 1603. And what happened in 1603 was that a Portuguese vessel, which was laden with treasures from China, was captured by 
the vessel of the Dutch East India Company. So the Portuguese vessel, the Santa Catarina, was captured by uh, a, a vessel belonging to the Dutch East India Company. Uh, the Dutch East India Company seized this treasure, which was uh, worth a fantastic amount. It was said to be worth something like um, half the uh, GDP of England in the same year, 1603. And a legal dispute emerged about who the proper owner of this treasure was. And so the Dutch East India Company returned to, well, they were based in Holland, and they said, well, we need to produce a legal argument that would justify what we have done. And they looked around for someone they thought would be the most promising um, uh, jurist or lawyer to advance their case. And he happened to be somebody who was already regarded as a boy genius. And that, of course, was Hugo Grotius. So Hugo Grotius, uh, in 1603, was given the task of writing a work that would justify the capture by a corporation, by the way a capture by a corporation of this treasure. And he produced uh, two works that we now know of, The Free Sea, and a much longer work called The Commentary of the Law and Prize and Booty. Now, it was in those works that Grotius really began to articulate his theories about natural law, about the right of self-defense, about the right of self-preservation, about the rights of war and peace. Now, we might think of Grotius's great work, published in 1625, The Rights of War and Peace, as being shaped by his experiences of the religious warfare that was uh, so devastating in Europe at the time. But perhaps it might be the case that his fundamental analytical categories, his early thinking, was shaped not by violence in Europe. It was shaped by the capture by a corporation the Dutch East India Company, of this treasure here in Singapore. So can we see then how that would change our understanding even of the most orthodox Western tradition or conventions uh, about the greatest or arguably the greatest scholar of um, the Western tradition of international law. Grotius spent his entire career, uh, more or less, with the Dutch East India, Dutch East India Company. Um, and uh, some very interesting writing has been done uh, in recent times about this. Uh, a wonderful piece, uh, wonderful work by Martin Van Ittersum. And here in, uh, here in Singapore, some superb work done by uh, uh, a historian, Peter Boschberg, who has studied in detail this whole question of the Grotius of the East Indies. So we have the Grotius of the East India Company and then the father of international law. Is it possible that these two identities, in fact, shaped and affected each other. And perhaps you can ask an even more absurd question, but I like asking absurd questions. Could it be argued that international law was created? If we see 1603 as the beginning of a certain tradition of international law, could we see that tradition as being a situation where international law is created for a corporation? So we don't focus on the peace of Westphalia. We focus on how international law, natural rights, are created to further the activities of a corporation. If that is right, it is no wonder that any attempt to make corporations accountable under international law are bound to fail, because corporations are not outside international law trying to remain outside international law, but corporations are at the very heart of international law. 
I'm not satisfied with that argument. I think there are various problems with it. But let me just throw it out there as a way of suggesting how we could see international law in a different way. We could see the great figures of international law in a different way if we change our angle and focus on what happens in the non-European world. We might also think of great scholars such as Vattel. Now, Vattel did not deal very explicitly with issues of colonialism. Um, but he did write uh, a few interesting paragraphs in his great work, uh, The Law of Nations, published in 1758. And those few paragraphs which basically held that societies which did not engage in agriculture had no rights to the land that they occupied. That was Vattel's basic argument in those few paragraphs. Those few paragraphs had, have had a huge impact on uh, peoples in New Zealand, people in Australia, and people in North America, because those were the types of arguments that were used by Western powers in justifying their settlement of those countries. The basic argument was these native peoples don't engage in agriculture, therefore they don't really own the land, and therefore we, who would engage in agriculture, can take over the land and make it more productive. Um, so what another interesting feature is how those few paragraphs of Vattel, which are not really given much attention by major Vattel scholars, have had such a profound impact on the non-European world. So what I'm interested in here is the asymmetry, you could say, of these works about how a particular paragraph, which is of no particular significance to um, Western scholars focusing on that tradition, could have an enormous impact on the non-European world. We might also see Grotius in a similar way. Um, so Grotius is a living presence in the jurisprudence of Sri Lanka, because Grotius wrote the opinions um, which in various ways justified the Dutch presence in uh, Sri Lanka. But he was also a great scholar. Grotius was an astonishing scholar, needless to say. He was also a great scholar of Roman Dutch law. And the law of Sri Lanka is Roman Dutch law. And so Grotius is cited as an authority in that regard. So we can see how the same person has a number of different personalities. And in many of these cases, the personalities are shaped by their engagement with the non-European world. So um, let me then, having uh, made some vast generalizations, but I hope at least that even though these are generalizations, and even though these are perhaps inaccurate, uh, they will at least communicate some of the basic themes and issues about why it is important to understand the Eurocentric history of international law from a different perspective and why we need to develop an alternative set of tools. Let me then just make a few points in closing. I think I've gone on quite a long time uh, in terms of the average length of these types of lectures. Uh, let me just try and make a few comments then on why the history of international law is important. Um, so my first point would be a fairly simple and prosaic point. Uh, most disputes uh, relating to territory, to relating to boundaries, or uh, whether they are territorial or maritime boundaries, have to do with history. And so, for example, if we look at the um, many uh, territorial disputes that have taken place in Africa, uh, which have been argued and heard before the ICJ, what this involves is really a study of the treaties that were entered into by various European powers at a time that non-European states were uh, deemed to be lacking in sovereignty. 
so we can think of you know so many cases, Lib uh, uh, Chad versus Libya, and so forth. Uh, they all have a historical dimension because it, it is uh, essential to understand the treaties that the European states had entered into in order to try and make a decision uh, about that particular dispute. Um, and uh, this is also the case uh, here in uh, Southeast Asia. Uh, disputes between Malaysia and Singapore require an understanding of the history of these regions and the different treaties that were entered into by the relevant parties. There is also, of course, in international law, the rule of intertemporality, the basic argument being that uh, a particular event or a particular situation has to be judged by the law applicable at that time. We can't apply today's law to an event that took place in 1820. And so once again, we need to understand the history of that period and what was the law of that time in trying to deal with this situation. And it is the rule of intertemporality which is so fundamental and which plays such a crucial role in preventing any claims for reparations made either by non-European states or the possible claims of reparations made by people who are the subjects of slavery. Slavery is one of the greatest atrocities uh, that um, this uh, our global community has uh, experienced. And yet, isn't it interesting that no reparations are available under international law to the people who have been subjected to this appalling suffering? The only case I know of, of reparations for slavery was a situation, actually, that took place in Haiti. When the Haitian slaves uh, liberated themselves, um, defeating Napoleon's armies, which is, I suppose, no small feat, uh, the French agreed, finally, to uh, recognize this newly independent Haiti on condition that uh, reparations were paid by the Haitians for the losses suffered by the French property and slave owners. So isn't that interesting? What does that tell us about international law? When the slaves have to pay compensation for their own liberation, whereas those people who are slaves and have suffered tremendously um, and their ancestors uh, would have no such claim available to them. Furthermore, um, the history of international law is useful um, for, as a heuristic device. So I've tried to suggest that um, we might see the history of international law in terms of certain structures of imperialism. And um, I do not want to claim, uh, let me make this explicit, that international law is inherently and always imperial. Rather, I would say that there is a dimension of international law or there's a, an aspect of international law which is imperial uh, in its um, uh, basic operations. And if we understand the history of international law and the theoretical framework that we derive from that history, we might have a framework which we can use to assess various developments of international law. In other words, it's a heuristic device. It's an interpretive device. It is a way in which we can recognize this phenomenon as it emerges, if and when it emerges. So certainly the Westphalian paradigm, the whole problem of order among sovereign states, is a very important paradigm for the understanding of his, the history of international law. But all I'm saying is it is not the only paradigm, and we need to understand the operation of international law in the non-European world to give a more complete picture of how international law operates.
Um, and so, for example, uh, let me try to give uh, some instances where I would claim that so-called modern and contemporary international law in various ways reproduces imperial structures. Um, so in recent years, we've been experiencing uh, what has been called by some the war on terror. And uh, what is very interesting about uh, the arguments made in favor of this uh, particular set of practices is an argument about we need a new paradigm of self-defense. We need a new paradigm of self-defense which would enable us to take something like preemptive action. This is an argument that is made in some circles. And this is not really a new argument, because uh, if we read Grotius and uh, if we can see the way in which European states characterized non-European peoples, we can see that the same arguments were made centuries ago. And it was made in relation to a comparable, not identical, a comparable situation where the basic argument was these people are inherently violent and we need to take action against them before they take action against us. They do, not, they do not abide by the laws of war. That was always a claim made, for example, about Native Americans, that these people are savages, they do not abide by the laws of war. So there's a whole history there, a whole history of practices and ideas and doctrines that are still a part of, you could say, the subconscious, if you will, of international law. And when the circumstances arise, those ideas emerge once again into consciousness, except we aren't aware of the fact that we are, in many cases, reproducing fairly old ideas and thinking of them as being brand new. Um, let me take another uh, doctrine that is now uh, the subject of a great deal of discussion, that is the doctrine of unable and unwilling. So the basic idea of this doctrine is that if a state, state A, feels threatened by state B, not by what state B is doing, but by uh, what certain actors within state B are doing, then state A can take action against state B if state B is unable or unwilling to suppress the threats which originate from its own territory. Uh, so this is a very uh, current debate, and I would say that this reproduces perfectly the old way in which a European international law tried to develop a vocabulary to say these people are not as sovereign or are lacking in sovereignty or have forfeited sovereignty and therefore we are justified in intervening uh, against these states and if necessary using force. It's a completely ancient and under understandable structure uh, which we could recognize if only we study the history of international law in an imperial setting. Um, similarly, uh, if we talk about investment arbitration, uh, uh, we might uh, see certain parallels between the whole system of investment arbitration uh, that is uh, now in place and an earlier system of capitulations, which was very much a part of 19th century international law. Uh, so in 19th century international law, uh, various European um, parties uh, 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 engaging in commerce in China and so forth said, we do not want to be subject to the local laws. We want to be subject to our own laws even if we happen to be in China. And um, this was a source of enormous humiliation for the people of China and uh, it seems to me they still haven't quite forgotten that. And uh, so in these types of circumstances we could see how a country transfers its um, 
sovereign power to some extra uh, sovereign entity to decide crucial issues. So there are, I'm not saying that there are perfect parallels, but I'm saying that we can see that there are certain structures, uh, certain ideas that are part of the inheritance of international law in which we can see in um, this setting of the non-European world. I've talked a lot about the whole question of power, but um, if we are talking about the history of international law, it is not only a history about power, it is also a history of resistance. And so in all these cases, we can see, as I mentioned, how non-European states try to claim that they were civilized and try to become accepted into the system of international law, and at the same time, try to use international law itself to further their own interests. And so it's very interesting, for example, that um, China wanted, um, uh, China in the 19th century wanted the works of Vattel translated. Vattel was very sympathetic to the situation of China, by the way. He was on the side of China in its disputes with the West. Uh, so it is not always the case that European scholars were, you could say, explicitly colonial. Far from it. Many of them were, saw themselves as being anti-colonial. Vattel condemned Grotius for being an imperial or justifier of imperialism. So it's very interesting to see how even while they saw themselves as being anti-imperial, they still sometimes in another context created structures that furthered imperialism. But um, anyway, uh, uh, this, uh, uh, we should think about the history of international law, not simply in terms of the problem of power, but also the issue about uh, resistance and the different ways in which people have tried to resist, resist the application of international law, to use international law in a novel way to further their own interests. Um, so, um, perhaps in concluding, all I would say is uh, one of the most um, promising, I would say, things to emerge from the history of international law is the fact that our study of the history of international law, the studies of the history of international law that are now emerging, are making highly problematic the whole question of what international law is in the first place. Uh, it is questioning the protocols that used to apply fairly rigorously in the past. And so things are now far more open. And so it is as a result of this, I believe, that various other incidents and events and personalities and encounters can be presented as being a part of this whole history of international law. Because the history of international law is no longer the narrow Eurocentric history of international law that it would have been many decades ago. Those protocols have been questioned, and we can now think of a whole range of materials uh, that would previously have never been expressed as being a part of the history of international law for the reasons that I outlined earlier. As I said earlier, there were certain protocols that had to be adhered to, and those were narrow protocols. And if a certain set of materials or events or issues did not fall within the scope of those protocols, then they could not be properly discussed within the scope of what might be called the discipline of international law in a way that would be coherent and in a way that would um, uh, be uh, properly listened to um, and uh, uh, engaged with. So I think this is a very interesting uh, time in which, we, in which to be engaging in the history of international law. And the final point I want to make is that uh, the one thing we might know from the history of international law is that while there are certain structures which might appear to repeat themselves, uh, this does not always have to be so because uh, there are various actors who choose 
these particular structures and want to deploy these particular structures. In other words, history is the past. It does not decisively determine the future. And so uh, to paraphrase uh, a well-known quotation, um, I think uh, Marx said, uh, men make their own history, although not under circumstances of their own choosing. Uh, so I think I would paraphrase that a little bit and say, although not under circumstances of their own choosing, men and women do make their own history. And an understanding of the history of international law, the histories of international law, will perhaps empower us to make our own histories uh, in a new and better way. Thank you very much for listening to me.